and welcome back to our second episode of First Person Student. My name is Oleg Brodsky, and I'm joined, as always, by my two co-hosts, Renzo Heredia. Hello. And Maxine Rock. Hey, guys. And today we're back to talk about design in video games and what the hell that means. Uh, we're going to be joined later in our second segment by Jenna Hofstein, who's going to answer some of our questions about design. And then in our third segment, we'll talk about the recent news uh, surrounding the industry. There's always fun stuff to talk about, and uh, not going to spoil any surprises, but if you just want to listen to that, you can jump ahead. Uh, but we start today with uh, design, um, which is something uh, that is somewhat near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's something that I, I like to do. It's, I do that a fair bit with the games that I've been working on. Um, and uh, it's somewhat... It's something that is somewhat difficult to define to a lot of people, especially to people who are not in the industry. Uh, when you explain that you are a designer, um, people tend to think, oh, you must write the, uh, the plot of the, st- of the game. Or uh, you, you're, you're, making, you're writing the code. But that's not... Designers don't do either of those things. Um, there are two kinds of designers fundamentally there's a system what's called the systems designer and a content designer there are various offshoots of that there's stuff like technical designers uh ux designers etc uh, but we're going to focus on systems and content and we'll talk about those other sorts of designers in future episodes um so to define the difference between the two a systems designer uh creates the structure for a game where the content designer fills it so uh let's i'm going to pick a, a a popular game. Let's say League of Legends. We've talked about that before. Uh, League of Legends, the systems designer basically figures out a lot of the overall mechanics of the game. You know, how players move, how they get around the map, uh, how you buy, whether or not you buy items, all that sort of stuff. So if you look at different MOBAs, like comparing, for example, Heroes of the Storm to League of Legends, you'll see some different systems are in place. So for example, uh, instead of items, Heroes of the Storm uses a talent tree. Uh, and that's a, that's a choice being made by a system designer. A content designer, on the other hand, creates something like the different characters that exist in the games. So League of Legends recently got a new character. That's generally created by a content designer. And they basically use the systems that are in place in the game already to create content. Uh, so this can be you know quests. This can be storylines. Uh, this can be epic you know boss battles, whatever. That's stuff that content designers do. Um, Level designers are sort of a very specific version of a content design. A uh, content designer, uh, what they'll do is they they, they exist to uh, look at a space in a game. You know, uh, Renzo's favorite bomb bomb battlefield. Um, you remembered. I appreciate that. <laughs> I do. Uh, but yeah, a level designer will look at that and be like, okay, we what's the what's the goal for this level? What are we trying to achieve? And then they'll design the level in such a way as to guide the player through the stuff that they want the player to see experience. Um, Gears of War Judgment has uh, where if you press a button during specific sequences, you'll your camera will get drawn to something cool happening off screen. Uh, so like you know something exploding or a building collapsing or a giant monster popping out of the ground, and that's that's you know that that happens in a level designed by a level designer, but the content designer adds that specific thing in partnership with the systems designer because that's a that's a system that is being used to show off this specific piece of content. Um, and that's basically a couple different designers working together to, uh, to, to do cool stuff. Oh, like I'm curious. Um, 
how how many designers would work on say like a triple a game like let's say i mean obviously super mario 64 may not have had as big of a team as games would do now but like how many level designers are there usually in a team and how do they split up work do they do one or two levels or do they each get their own or do they all do them at the same time and like share their work so the truth is this varies a lot from game to game uh and project to project and to different Different organizations, as always, do things differently. So it's really difficult to, to give standards for this sort of stuff. Um, the best way I can answer your question is with uh, an example. And I don't have specific numbers for this. Um, but if I, if I or you or anyone was to look through the credits of a game, you'd get a better sense of this sort of thing. Um, but generally, you have a couple systems designers. And they're, they're pretty early on in the process. They sort of figure out the, the nuts and bolts of the game. Uh, content designers come a bit later. Um, any game that has a strong narrative focus, uh, like something like, say, Bioshock Infinite, ideally you want to have that stuff nailed down in a place so that your content designers can go nuts within the, the realms that you create. Um, but game production schedules are such that that's not always possible, so you end up having, uh, you end up having situations where uh, content is being created and then being like tested and play-tested and stuff, and um, either the story changes or whatever, and suddenly like that content isn't as useful anymore. So you have situations where um, minor spoiler alert for Bioshock Infinite, where where you know like the the level where you fight uh, Elizabeth's mother's ghost, which makes no goddamn sense in the game. Um, that's just a case where somebody made that thing. That thing was pretty far along in the production cycle, and then. Uh, cha- changes were made, and I've already forgotten the question. By the way, so please repeat it. <laughs> Basically, like, uh, how many are there usually in in a typical team for like, let you know, to narrow it down, like a AAA game, say like Bioshock Infinite, and then how do they split up the work? Um, okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. Now I can actually answer that. Um, <laughs> so you're generally going to want a couple systems designers, but most of your designers need to be content designers. Uh, this is very this vary a lot, though, depending on the type of game. For example, uh, an open-world game needs a ton more content than it needs systems, uh, whereas something that's very... Like Call of Duty has a lot of separate little segments. That one, I would imagine they need a few more systems designers because you're sort of messing around with uh, specific subsystems periodically. Or something like a strategy game needs very few content designers, but needs a lot of systems designers. Hmm. Uh, because that the nature of that game is it's those kinds of games usually is that you're playing as a player with various systems and trying to manage, uh, you know, your gold and your military and your economy and all that other stuff. Uh, so content isn't as, as important there, um, but it can still be important. For example, you know, Civilization Five is a is a fantastic game which I love, and in that system, I would imagine um, they have a couple content designers that are basically. Uh, in charge of, cre- of of designing the civilizations, which isn't a ton of work, I'd imagine, um, because they they don't have too much stuff going on there. But it's still important work. Um, so they might not even have a separate content designer. That just might be a separate a thing that system designer goes off and, and figures out. But usually these disciplines are somewhat separated um, because fundamentally you're approaching how the player interacts with the game from a different perspective. Uh, and it, so as I said, it depends on the game that you're, you're making, how much content design you really need. For example, again, with Red Survivor, which is a strategy game, um, most of my work as a designer is, has to do with systems. 
So I'll create, for example, the way that uh, tiles affect different things or um, the way that your survivors care about resources and whatever. So uh, the way that that, that that work is split up is it's sort of, it's defined by that game specifically. So depending on what you're, you're working on, um, you're going to have a different split and Generally, you know that sort of thing in advance, so it's not like a surprise, like, oh, look, we're making a first-person shooter. Maybe we should get some more content designers. Um, so you usually, like, teams that are, uh, for Axis, for example, is, is a studio that makes Civilization, and they make other strategy games. They're probably almost entirely system designers, whereas the former Rational was probably mostly content designers with a few system designers sprinkled in. So you would say one of the big challenges for small or indie studios on the designers at least, would be that, you know, you kind of have to play all of those roles. Yeah, yeah, you do. It's tough. Um, and that's sort of one of the reasons why you really don't want to make a big game. Um, you know, Renzo and I have been spending a lot of time with the Master G Summer Innovation Program, and one of the big things that they've been talking a lot about is scope. Uh, and scope basically refers to the amount of stuff that you're trying to put into the game. And that includes, you know, art and features and systems and all this different crap. Um, everybody has a problem with scope because you always want to have more stuff and have it be cooler. And it's like, oh, if we just add in this one more feature, it'll be perfect and everything will be awesome and the game will work fine. Um, but as an indie, you have to do both the system design and the content design. Um, and that becomes very, very difficult uh, to manage to do both because systems is basically broad scope. So something like Skyrim, for example... As a systems designer, you're very broad scope. You're sort of playing around with the, with the basic building blocks of that game. So you might have a content designer that's supposed to just build Whiterun and just figure out, okay, you know, here are the quests that are going to be in Whiterun. Here are the, the townsfolk. Here's the schedules that they'll go about their daily lives. And that's a lot, a lot of work. But it's still really easy for an indie team to get into that position where they want to build a lot of stuff and they can't, which is why a lot of indies tend to go for procedurally generated content. Uh, you, you see that fairly constantly in, in the indie space because procedurally generated content is a really easy way to make come up with a couple simple system rules, basically, that will define the game uh, without you having to create that all that stuff by hand. Uh, so a great example of that is uh, uh, No Man's Sky, which has looked really cool based on what we've seen so far. It's the one where uh, it's being made by a team of, like, I think, five or six people, um, in uh, I think they're from England, and they basically it, you're you're put in a spaceship and you get to explore your this galaxy that's procedurally generated and it's gigantic, and it's multiplayer and it's massive and we have no goddamn clue how it plays yet, but it looks really cool, um, and it looks like the game that Spore was kind of supposed to be, and it has all these different you know uh, magical look awesome looking monsters and creatures and stuff like that, and they're all generated by uh, procedural content generation. Um, I should probably define what that is. Uh, <laughs> so, so procedural generation basically means that you, you give a computer uh, certain rules uh, to, to follow when it's creating different pieces of content. So, for example, um, uh, Raph Koster, who's a, a legendary designer, he's, I mean, he's done basically everything to do with MMOs. Uh, he wrote a blog post, which I'll, I'll try and find so we can link it in the show notes, um, about how they designed the the worlds of Star Wars Galaxies, um, because Star Wars Galaxies came out about 10 years ago, and at the time, uh, memory was very expensive and, and hard to find. So they, based, they how they were able to simulate entire planets, I think they had six planets, 
um, was incredible. What they basically did was they they de- they developed rules for the computer, and then they gave the computer a formula. And that formula basically was the mathematical explanation of those rules. That's I think awesome. I answered your question. Yeah, yeah, I think you did. So on this talk about um, you know procedurally generating um, content, uh, let's say like in this case, like enemies. Um, there's this interesting article I just read. Um, it's on iGameResponsibly.com, and it talks about Naughty Dog designer Isabetta Isabetta Silly's GDC talk from 2014. And what she does is she basically breaks down some of the level design techniques they used in The Last of Us. So in one area called the docks, which is sort of early in the game, uh, this is some of the quotes from the, the article. The original design had players starting on an elevated platform with plenty of cover, leading to almost immediate engagement with the enemy. And then on this level, it was also decided that players should know the amount of enemies there, there were to dispatch before beginning combat so that the entirety of the enemy AI was showcased during the cutscene as well. Um, my question is how do, how are these procedurally generated, let's say like enemies, how are they balanced per se? Like, um, you know, how they come out, how fast they are in this sort of game, um, you know, how fast they'll go, how many there are and how often they'll appear in levels that are like this. Okay. So, so quick and important distinction. Um, the last of us is not procedurally generated. Oh, okay. so a procedurally generated game is basically a game where uh, there, there's randomization in the amount of stuff that will appear. Um, Rogue Legacy is a fantastic example because the entire map will be procedurally regenerated. A lot of uh, old school real-time strategy games um, had procedurally generated maps. StarCraft is a very important exception. But something like Age of Empires... Um, well, can procedurally generate maps with specific rules. So what Last of Us does there is they those all that stuff is designed by the level designer, who's a sort of content designer, um, and the level designer will decide. Okay, I want uh, these enemies to, to patrol this path. Um, I want these uh, uh, th- these enemies over here to just sit here uh, to guard the the walls or whatever. And you you design that space in mind with what makes sense for the game and the uh, what you're trying to achieve. So, so she she was talking about there how they they sort of initially wanted to show off that AI so that so that way because they wanted that was their goal they showed the player the AI from the beginning so that the player could watch the AI and sort of appreciate what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, procedurally generation you can't trust to give you exactly what you want. It will give you it can give you slight variety of a thing or a lot of variety, but it can't give you you know the exact one result. Anytime you you have something like uh, a narrative that you really want to bear down on, you really don't want to rely on a procedural generation because you will you will sometimes give players the thing you do not want them to see, or you know things will be uh, very difficult or whatever because of the way that generation happened. Master Oleg, educating developers all over the world. <laughs> uh, no, I mean it, that's that's no, it's it's a fair question because it's important to understand the difference because uh, not only just for when you're talking about games, but when you're trying to make your own. Um, because if you tell your programmer, hey, I think we should do this procedurally generated, and mm-hmm. you mean one thing and, the, and your programmer thinks another thing, um, you're going to be very sad when the system, you, someone creates a system that is not what you intended. So you know, I'm just trying to save everybody some time and, and effort. Yeah, the sound guy like me who needs to know um, what's going to be there 
something is going to generate so that audio can be generated or if things will just be in place. And so audio that... can also be procedurally generated. I mean, going back to Skyrim, the way that that game does its soundtrack, and I know we talked about this in the previous podcast, but it's also procedural where there's three, where any time that the game can be playing between, I think it's one and three different tracks that will merge together a distinctive soundtrack. Um, to the game during when you're just wandering around. Yeah. Uh, procedural generated is not is not limited to just just design in that sense. It's also it's also used by sound by sound designers and composers. There's also No Man's Sky. Um, Paul Paul Ware did the procedural generated audio on that. It's so good. But yeah, just throwing that out there. So yeah, so that's that's sort of a a rough overview of design. And I mean, one of the things that is important to recognize in design is that a lot of your stuff is crap. Um, and I don't mean that because I'm some amazing designer. Um, I mean that because I've, I've made cool stuff and I've made a lot of stupid stuff and a lot of it is crap. Um, because it, design exists to serve, again, a specific purpose. And if your design is not achieving that purpose, no matter how awesome it looks or how cool the idea is, um, if it doesn't fulfill the purpose that your game needs it to fulfill, it's worthless and you have to throw it out and you have to start over. When you're setting out as a designer to kind of make a game, you know, you have your idea and your concept and you kind of know, you know, a sort of genre, what's your process? You know, what advice do you have for, um, you know, students who kind of want to start their first game? That's a really, really good question. Um, yeah, one of the big things that is important to remember is that a, uh, an idea person is not a designer. Um, an idea is just the start of a game. It is, it is not a, a game in and of itself. So my process is, um, it's sort of, I don't, have, I, don't, I don't have anything formulaic, but what I, I like to do is sort of sit down and think about, you know, what is this game, what is this game idea trying to achieve? Um, what are we trying to have the player experience? Uh, because in order to figure out what, in order to figure out what you need to make, you need to figure out what the goal of those things are in the first place. Um, and to use an example again, uh, so with Red Survivor, I wanted to sort of make a a turn-based strategy game that was about this inter the, the sort of ultimate survival experience as a strategy game because I really love strategy games and I really enjoy those survival games and I thought hey let's try and mash those two together and one of the first things you're going to want to do is you're going to want to look at games that are doing similar things to what you're doing uh, that's called market research um, but it's really important for a designer as well because it gives you a sense of what other people, what other designers who have run into these sorts of issues, what they thought and what they did. So as a designer, you want to be well played. Um, if you want to design an MMO, you can't just play MMOs. Um, MMOs are important, but MMOs are based off of other, strat uh, other genres like RPGs or first-person shooters or whatever. Um, and that stuff's really useful because it allows you to, to sort of cross-pollinate your ideas as well. Um, so that, that market research is important, but then you you kind of want to bring in the stuff that you're doing outside of that market research. So, for example, um, one of the funny things about Ubisoft is that they sort of can get a little repetitive. Uh, so, in, uh, in I think it was 2011, Assassin's Creed Revelations came out. Um, and Assassin's Creed Revelations uh, introduced this mechanic where you would uh, climb up to a tower and you would burn it. And when you burnt it, you would unlock this district around the tower. 
Um, and they've used that idea in like four of their other games. Like uh, Far Cry 3 did that, Far Cry 4 did that, a couple other Assassin's Creed did that. I think Watch Dogs did that as well. So basically, like those designers all talk to each other and they're like, let's bring a version of that idea into our game. Even though, you know, Assassin's Creed and Far Cry are very different games, they can still make use of similar mechanics. And that's why you want to start to have a sense of what, what's big today, what big games are coming out, this, the way they handle, you know, their gameplay and stuff like that, because sometimes it can have an impact on what you want to do. Um, so, um, talking about that, I know, you know, there's there's popular, you know, platform games. There's like, you know, computer PC games, but, but the mobile market, um, I wouldn't say is necessarily easy. But, you know, there's all these companies, you know, popping out a thousand puzzle games and they're still around. So they're obviously making some kind of money. So, you know, if you're doing your market research, should you be wary of fad hopping or should you focus on what's trending? So my feeling in general when it comes to trends is unless you are a huge company with a lot of resources, um, don't jump on a trend too late. Unless you're Blizzard and you can afford to take time with your MOBA uh, and release it, you know, at well after two or three games have basically established the market and control it, um, you really don't want to jump on that trend. You know, if I was if I was an indie developer or even like a mid-core developer, I would not want to release a MOBA because there's too many. The market's oversaturated. The games tend to... Uh, require people to play a hell of a lot before they get good at them, which forces players to basically stick with the game that they've chosen and not game hop. Uh, mobile's a little different because mobile, the the barrier to entry tends to be much lower. So it's really easy to, to say, oh, you know, I like Clash of Clans, but I got bored of this Clash of Clans. I'm going to play this other, you know, Clash of Clans clone because there's 50 of them. I'll play the Star Wars one. I'll play the uh, the whichever one I want to because there's, there's just so many and they're so easy and so cheap. I, my feelings in general is that unless you have something to add to that that nobody else does, like a killer IP or uh, you have a lot of resources, which usually involves a killer IP, um, stay the hell away from it, especially if you're an indie, um, because you are, you are competing with people who have a lot more money than you, who beat you to market, and already have the audience. Uh, it's really tough to convince an audience to switch over no matter how good your game is, unless you basically yeah. have that, that golden ticket game. Um, and those come, you know, once in a blue moon. You know. So if you're oh. starting out... Oh, sorry, Renzo. No, 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 go on. If you're starting out, you should be watching your scope, the size of your game, what you're actually, you know, aiming for, and you should do your market research. I'm really curious how much, how drastically we'll have to do market research once the triple A's get into the mobile scene. Well, they've been like they've been. And, but like now Konami is like super straight up. Like we're going to, we, you know, doing the major overhaul of their, of their company structure and being dedicated to go mobile. Nintendo announcing earlier that they'll go mobile. Look, the Konami is in an, can do this sort of thing. And Nintendo can do this sort of thing because they have IPs that people care about and they can, you know, make a Mario version of puzzle and dragons and people will play it because it's Mario and it's got Mario on the cover. Um, but again, like that's the thing. This isn't a new idea. You know, EA has been in the space forever. Activision was in this for a while. Uh, there's lots of big companies that have been in the mobile space. So this isn't some, some new 
fangled thing that you know Nintendo and and Konami are trying that no one else has done. Mm-hmm. Um, is if there's money to be made, you can bet your ass big companies to show up to see if they can make some money. Like I'm looking at this link that popped up that uh, there's going to be a a Laura Croft version of of Temple Run, which is like should shock absolutely nobody. Um, and it's not a, it's not technically Temple Run, but it's it's basically the same mm-hmm. damn game. And the reason that these companies do this is basically because mobile is a cheap market uh, to, to develop for. Generally, um, you don't have this. You don't have to build a, a huge team uh, like you do have to build for you know uh, a, a main a main console AAA release. And your expectations are are much lower from the audience. The, the audience doesn't care as much um, about the quality of the thing because they expect it to be sort of, you know, a, a cheap casual experience. Um, but that's neither here nor there. As a designer, I look at a lot of that stuff and I sort of wince because I think you can do that stuff well. But I don't know if the audience that you're you're hoping to attract really exists on mobile. Um, uh, so we'll see what happens. But it's a I, I'm not. I'm not looking at that, and really expecting much. But yeah, I think that was a that was a good talk about uh, about design stuff. Um, thank you guys for listening. In the in the next segment, we'll be talking with Jenna Hofstein about some of these yes. these things we've brought up, and she'll give us her view. Uh, and then uh, stick around after that. We will be back with our new segment. So uh, see you soon. Cool. See you in a bit, guys. live you mean we're recording yes okay (laughs) and we're back with our second segment we are uh, talking with jenna hofstein uh from little worlds interactive what title do you prefer jenna (laughs) depends on who i'm talking to usually founder but sort of chief of everything i do design i do programming i do kind of everything that falls in between the cracks Chief of Everything is a great title. So we're, we're speaking with uh, Chief of Everything, Jenna Hofstein from Little Worlds Interactive. Uh, Jenna kindly agreed to, uh, to talk to us today about design. Uh, so Jenna, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, how you got into design? Absolutely. I've been in the industry for, oh gosh, eight or nine years at this point, which is pretty amazing to think. I originally was really interested in computer graphics. And so I wanted to work at Pixar, DreamWorks, or you know, one of the big movie studios. And I was very fortunate to get a summer internship at a local company called Turbine, which creates MMOs, and just fell in love with games. The idea that I could make something on a screen that people wouldn't only see and respond to that way, but be able to interact with, and they might need to work for hours to find it, or they might need to battle it, or... You know, who knows? There's so many different things you can do in games. That to me was incredibly, incredibly powerful, and I've been in games since. Awesome. Uh, would you mind telling us about some of the other places you've worked at and some of the, the games you've helped release? Sure. Early in my career, I worked at a startup called Hangout Industries, where we were working on a virtual world uh, for teen girls that was focused mostly on sort of a social type experience. I then went uh, back to school to get my graduate degree in game design and then came back to Boston and worked for a company called Stop Games for a couple of years. 
uh, where I was a designer on Robot Rising, which was a Facebook game that I like to describe as Diablo with robots on Facebook. That gives you a pretty good <laughs> overview of the game. Heck yeah. And then after working there for a little while, I decided to go independent and founded Little Worlds Interactive, where I'm making educational games for kids. So Stomp was, was a fairly big studio, and Little Worlds is obviously basically you. <laughs> so yes. how, how was that transition? Why did you decide to, to, to go that route? Um, that's a really good question. I love the flexibility and, uh, the nimbleness of having a very, very small studio. There are pros and cons to both, you know, working at a larger studio, you can obviously tackle much larger projects and you get to work alongside a much larger group of people. Um, Mm -hmm. so I've tried to kind of keep that while remaining a one person studio. I'm part of a local group called the Indie Game Collective. And even though we're all individual studios, it's like, uh, 10 or so local indies, even though we're all kind of our own studios, we work together in the same space. And so I get the benefits of being able to sit alongside really creative, amazingly intelligent people. Uh, but I also get the nimbleness and creative control of really being um, in charge of my own games. That's cool. Uh, on that, when you're with a team and you're creating the design for a game, Once that's all done, once everyone comes up with a concept and everyone sort of figured out their roles, are you the sole person who would say, like, just focus on this is how the design of the the game would work? Or would it work, as you say, you, uh, like, do other people contribute to the design of a game as well as much as you're working on it? I think it very much depends on the setup of the studio, on the individual team. Every studio is going to have their own culture Ideally, a designer is bringing in ideas and influences from as many different sources as possible. So this is not only their own ideas, but also just raw creative fodder from, um, you know, going to museums and reading books and watching movies, in addition to also talking to other people on the team and getting their ideas. And then the designer's role is really to kind of process all of that raw data into Um, into the best form of the design they can. But it never really stops there. Ideally, design should be as iterative as possible. So the designer comes up with the initial concept, but then has to continually get feedback from outside sources to really refine that and make that the best version of what it can be. That's kind of neat. I never thought about, um, I'm pretty new to the industry, and I've never really thought about design in a way like you, you take an idea, like if you saw something in a movie, you can make it into a game. (laughs) Absolutely. I think one of the larger problems that the games industry faces is that it's very, um, very inward looking. And so we tend to get a lot of games that are just iterations on other games. And that's one of the reasons I think the indie space is really, really exciting is that people are taking much larger risks. And when you have a one-person studio, you can take a much larger risk than you can with a 400-person studio because if you fail, it's just one person who, you know, is taking the burden of that failure instead of yeah. 400 people suddenly being out of a job. So I'm not I'm not trying to say anything negative about AAA studios. It's just kind of the way that the structure is set up. Um, but yeah, I think some of the best games really take influences from a very wide variety of sources. When people tend to talk or think about uh, design, especially people outside of the industry, there's sort of the perspective of, of the designer as the, the idea person. Uh, <laughs> and obviously you, you don't think that's true. So uh, 
why is that a, an inaccurate perception? The so ideas are one part of what the designer does, and obviously somebody needs to come up with the idea at some point down the line, or you never have a place to start from. But it is such a small piece of the pie because an idea, an idea by its very nature is something that doesn't exist. And the work of taking that idea and making it into a fully functional game that runs really well is actually an astonishing amount of work. And there are so many details and tasks that go into that that are completely invisible for the most part to, um, you know, just to players and to people in general. And that's almost by design. You know, my game, The Counting Kingdom, I spent weeks balancing the game to make sure that the difficulty curve worked. And that's one of those things where people are only going to notice that if it's poorly tuned, if the balance isn't right. If the balance of that difficulty curve is right, ideally people should just not even notice it. It should just feel good. And a lot of design is under the hood like that in a way that people outside of the industry may not realize just how much work goes into games. And we see this with Kickstarters all the time, right? Where people just don't understand the yeah. sheer amount of work that goes into games. So ideas are are the spark, are the beginning, but ideas are not the work part. So you've designed a lot of different systems for a lot of different games. What do you think has been the hardest for you to make? Oh, wow. What has been the <laughs> hardest to make. I think consistently tutorials are one of the hardest design tasks that I've come across because by their nature, so there are two different things. One, you have to iterate over and over and over and over and over again on tutorials. So they can just be very draining to work on because it it can really feel like the work is just never going to end. And secondly, because tutorials are meant to serve gamers who know nothing about your game, the designer who created the game knows the, knows everything about the game, knows the most about the game. And so by definition is the worst possible person to assess how well the tutorial is working because they already know everything in the game. And so they can't go through the tutorial and figure out what they're learning because they're not learning everything. They already know it. And so it's just incredibly difficult to try and get yourself into that mindset of what would a new player be able to get from this tutorial? What holes do I have? What still isn't working smoothly? Um, And it just requires an incredible amount of playtesting. Yeah. One thing I've always had respect for is how attentive every dev is whenever you check out a game at a demo (laughs) show at PAX, at GDC. When you're on the tutorial, that's where I really feel their eyes are on you, their ears are on you, or they're checking everything, um, you know, how a player reacts. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing how critical, it, it's great too how devs recognize how critical the tutorial is. Absolutely, and it really makes or breaks somebody's experience because you can have an amazing game, but if a player never gets through that tutorial successfully, if they just get frustrated and drop out, then they never get to access the rest of, you know, all this hard work that you've done. And so it really is um, that initial hurdle in your game that you really have to work so hard to get everybody over. Yeah, I was. Uh, one of my questions was, since you've kind of designed a lot of different games, um, you know, there's obviously a thought process going into games. So, you know, do you have a thought process? You know, like when you're when you're designing, and what is it? And is it different when versus you know some some kind of like entertainment game? 
versus an educational game? Uh, that was kind of a lot. So we can just go with <laughs> one thing. But. <laughs> That's all right. The process is a little bit different. I, I tend to advocate for a very experienced driven design process. So mm-hmm. at the very, very beginning of working on a game, I try to figure out what are the experiences that I want my players to have. Should this game feel like an adventure? Should this game be something that has really high spiky moments of adrenaline? Should this game feel feel peaceful? Should this game feel, um, you know, like should the player have moments where they feel super, super clever, like in a puzzle game? Mm-hmm. And so one of the tools that I like to use kind of as a litmus test to keep me on track in game development is, I wish I had a good name for this tool, but maybe we can come up with something. It's, it's three different words that define the uh, big experience pillars in your game. So for example, for the Counting Kingdom, the three words that I came up with were magical math adventure. So whenever I implemented something new, whether it was uh, a new UI, new feature, I always went back to those three words and asked, is what I'm working on uh, making this game feel like like more of an adventure? Is it making the game feel very magical? Um, Does it uphold the math in the game? And that really helped kind of keep me on track because especially when you're an indie, the possibility space of what you can make is so big that it can get very overwhelming. And so yeah. ha- having something like that can give you a way to evaluate the many different options that you face as you move through a game's development. Did that answer your question? Maybe? Yeah, no, that's, that's really <laughs> interesting. I, uh, I always thought, you know, um, when we first came into this, I was talking to Oleg about game and games and, you know, I didn't know what a producer did. And I always, I thought, oh, like designers have ideas and then other people do all the work. <laughs> Uh, oh, I wish. <laughs> I know, like I've seen, I've seen it in in practice now, and I know that like just some of the things that the designer has to like encounter, like to like you said, tutorials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every designer is a little bit different. And every game is a little bit different. So the Counting Kingdom actually started um, with a very started very mechanically. So I sat down and I thought, all right, what what's a set of mechanics? that I could come up with that makes addition very strategic. And so I just paper prototyped out something that initially didn't even have a theme. It wasn't, you know, set in this fantasy magical world. It just was a set of little square pieces of paper marching down towards other square pieces of paper. And so in that example, it was a very sort of mechanical start. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really going to vary by project and by person. When you look at the design of, uh, of games that you've worked on, um, you mentioned the three pillars that you use to design um, Counting Kingdom. Um, do you use a similar strategy when you're working on games where it's not just your project, but you're a member of a team? Well, there I think it depends on your role. And what's absolutely crucial is that the creative director is making the design vision very clear. So it doesn't necessarily need to be the three pillars. There are a lot of other tools and a lot of other ways to communicate what that vision is, but it's a really important part of the design process that everybody is on the same page in terms of what they're creating. And that's actually intensely difficult, especially with much bigger studios. And so communication is really, really important. Uh, so there's, there's obviously lots of different 
things going on in games right now, design-wise. Uh, obviously, free-to-play is a big deal, and that's really changed the way that games are designed and experienced. Um, but educational games sort of exist in their own little world. What sort of have you noticed are sort of the, some of the driving trends in uh, educational and serious games? Yeah, educational games are kind of their own separate weird little bubble. Um, like the rest of the mobile market, the educational game category on the App Store is, you know, just very, very difficult to make money from because like you see with all the other categories, it really comes down to the rankings and what's featured. And if you're not in that top 10, top 50, the revenue that you can get trails off very, very quickly. Um, so like everything else, it's incredibly difficult. There are a few things that are kind of unique to that category. Um, one of them is that the consumer of the game and the customer are two different people. So you need to make the game for the kid, but market the game towards the parent. Yeah. And that actually kind of took me a little while to wrap my head around. I feel like I, I finally have been able to customize our marketing content so it's working well, but it, it um, you know, it's just something that I wasn't quite used to coming from making games for adults, making, you know, marketing them towards the same people who are going to be playing them. The educational world itself, outside of games, is going through a lot of debate and upheaval right now with the greater amounts of assessment going on and the introduction of things like the Common Core. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. My mother is a teacher, so I hear a lot about Common Core, and that's one of the things that I was, you know, you there's not a lot of people who make educational games to begin with, mm -hmm. and I wonder how you adapt to that kind of the, the testing and the assessment. Well, that's one of the reasons that I ended up really targeting the consumer market primarily instead of the school market, because my background is not in education. Um, and so it, uh, you know, trying to make sure that I really was adhering to the common core was not sort of a challenge I felt ready to tackle quite yet. What I do think uh, the more assessment-driven educational landscape is doing to the educational game market in the past couple of years is that it's really driving a lot of quiz-based apps. You know, if you look at the top 50, top 100 in the educational category, a lot of them are fundamentally just quizzes that have kind of had some layers of gamification laid on top of that. And quizzes fundamentally are not good games. A lot of them aren't even games by any definition I know. And I think that if we're looking at the home market, at kids playing at home, ga educational games need to be fun enough that they're opting in. Because think of all of the different, you know, kids are exhausted from a day at school. They don't want to do math. They don't want to do any more learning. They just want to have fun. And so if an educational game is not fundamentally fun, even if it has the greatest educational content in the world, kids are not going to opt into that. And so I would love to see a greater focus in the educational game market on educational games that are that are great games instead of um, instead of merely quizzes. What's one of the key differences in designing a game for children as opposed to designing a game for adults? Um, it's it sort of depends on the genre. There are a lot of genres with adults where accessibility is a little bit less of an issue because with 
sort of hardcore gamers, like they know what they like and they're going to play Diablo 3 because it's Diablo 3, regardless of how good the tutorial is. <laughs> uh, with kids, you don't, you don't always get that. Though, I would say one of the big mistakes a lot of people make is underestimating kids. Kids are very clever and kids have a very sophisticated design sense. And it's very easy to kind of talk down to them. That's an easy trap to fall into. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other really big differences I can think of is just use of vocabulary. It can be very easy to uh, accidentally use words that kids who are six or seven or eight haven't really come across yet in their reading and in their schooling. Um, and so specifically using much simpler words can make your game more accessible to a younger age group. Have you been able to work that out? Have Did you research what would be most responsive or did you sort of get that through the feedback you got from kids or other folks playing the game? That mostly came through feedback. It came through a lot of um, just purposefully going through the vocabulary used in the game and simplifying it down. Fortunately, the Counting Kingdom has very few words in it to begin with, uh, so it wasn't too difficult. It's not a dialogue-heavy game. Um, But also just playtesting with as many kids as I could and seeing where they got stuck, seeing where they asked questions, um, and trying to figure out, you know, is is the language a barrier in any of these places? And do you have any thoughts on, like, Um, if you'd make a different kind of educational game, like something like a reading game, uh, would the design for that be different than the math-based one? Oh, absolutely. I think that anytime you make an educational game, you have to look at the content and structure the game around what's going to work best for that content. One of the reasons that I decided to tackle math first just from a development standpoint, is that, um, <laughs> this is going to sound silly, but computers understand math. Computers know how to do math. If you, you know, open up the calculator on your computer and do two plus two, like the computer can do that. The computer does not know that purple banana socks doesn't make any sense as a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and so the content that I chose is something that computers already understand. And so if you choose something like an English game um, or really kind of anything else besides math, that's, you need to teach your game the rules of what is an acceptable answer and what isn't an acceptable answer because computers just don't inherently have that knowledge. Um, But yeah, to go back to your question, any, any, any content is going to have a set of, systems and structures that best fit it. And if you're making a game for grammar, that's going to be very different from a game for addition. And that's going to be very different from a game about ecosystems because they all have different things that sort of naturally are a better fit. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Moving on a little bit. um, What would you tell any interested uh, people who are looking at design, um, about the profession and how to get into it? Uh, So for anybody who wants to get into the games industry, I always have two very different, two very big suggestions. Uh, The first is to make games, and that may sound very silly, but you would be surprised to see how many resumes I get from people who just say, I love playing games. It's like, well, that's great. Like, so do the rest of us. (laughs) That is no bearing on your ability to actually make games. 
Um, and a lot of people, like you were saying earlier, don't realize how intensely difficult making games actually is. They think that they just get to go in and spout off brilliant ideas and tell other people what to do. And that's, that's just not how design works. And so making games, whether that be at game jams, um, whether that be on your own and making completing games is also really important. You know, I tend to see a lot of people who tackle ideas that are just way too big for their first game and it makes it it doesn't show if you have a bunch of unfinished games it doesn't show that you know how to complete a game and that's actually a really important skill knowing where to say okay this is done this is done enough these systems all work together completing a game is really important i would also say that it doesn't really matter what tool set you use if you can learn unity and show you have that skill that's great, but if you can show me a game that you've made in Twine, if you can show me um, mods that you've made to other games, if you can show me board games you've made, I don't really care because the design sensibilities translate pretty nicely across all those different things. So don't worry too much about the tools. Just be able to show that you are capable of, of designing things, that you've done this, that you've tried this, you've gone full circle through the experience, and you still love it and really want to do it. So number one, make games. Number two, network. Um, this is something that people told me for years and didn't really sink in until, until I went indie and I actually started networking and I actually started seeing the value of it. But this is a very, very networking-driven industry where if you send a resume into a website for a company, the odds of it just kind of getting lost in a black hole are actually much greater than would be ideal. But if you can go to local meetups, if you can go to GDC, if you can go to any of these industry events and start meeting people, you know, not only will you have a much broader pool of people to learn from and to potentially collaborate with, but the chances of you getting hired at any of these studios that you're interested in are also going to be much greater if you can meet people from those studios um, and just show them that you're awesome and should be hired. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a particular genre or type of game that you would recommend people start with that you feel would be easier to get experience with? Uh, not an MMO. <laughs> so i can't Go. make world of warcraft 2 come on jenna you're kidding me i would say the genre it's not about the genre it's about the scope um because you know a lot of students a lot of really young developers if you're doing this in your free time you're going to have a relatively small team of people and so making the scope really 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 tiny enough for you to complete it um, in what is likely to be just sort of your free time or your off hours is going to be really important. And it's a very classic rookie mistake to decide that you're going to make, you know, an epic 3D like MMO with crafting and destructive environment and realistic physics. It's like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> It's weird Make that nobody else thought to do that. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, learning how to scope a project well is a skill in and of its own right. It's so hard. Like, in the experience <laughs> I personally had, um, it's funny being in a team where everyone has different scopes. Because sometimes everyone's ideas sound incredible. And everyone's, we all want to try to 
nail them down. And when now we had many ideas last year in Mass Digi Summer Innovation Program with many, many things where we wanted to make another WarriorWare game. One person wanted to make this awesome night adventure game uh, where the night, uh, since it follows WarriorWare, you do different mini games. The night would come across enemies. Each enemy represents like a different mini game you would do. But then some people said, no, we need to do something like a capsule machine where it's <laughs> like you grab a capsule and then that opens up a game. And we try to do something where we morphed both and it just completely made our plan fall apart since there was no <laughs> way we could make it work. Uh, I wanted to know, um, the how do you organize scope most of the time? Is there a type of development cycle you like to use? Do you use a type of like agile development or scrum meetings with your team or use any Kanban boards or anything? So this is going to be very different depending on the makeup of your team. Uh, so at Little Worlds Interactive, I am the only full-time person, and then I have a number of contractors that I work with. So for myself, what I basically have is a big whiteboard at home where I write out the upcoming, let's say, six months or so, and then I have uh, post-it notes for big features. And just based on sort of my gut estimate, I put them up where I think I can finish them. One of the things that I've learned is to, if I think... Um, Let's say for the Counting Kingdom, I was implementing, I don't know, boss battles. Uh, if my gut says that that'll take me a month to implement, I give myself two months to do it. Because as an indie developer, so much of my time is taken up with things that aren't game development. There's just so many other things that I need to be doing, like marketing and communicating with people and exhibiting the game. And it's like a long, infinite list of things that just aren't game development. So that's one of the things I've learned to do is double the amount of time I have or I give myself. Um, when working with contractors, one of the things that I've found that works really well is instead of having people work hourly, I have them work in bundles. So I'll come to them and I'll say like, okay, uh, in the next three months, I'm going to need this list of 50 different things. And then they'll give me sort of a time estimate and we'll decide on a budget, you know, what's an appropriate compensa compensation for that. And then they'll have a due date. So instead of just saying like, hey, you know, do this work, please. And I'll pay you per hour. It's, you know, all right, I'm paying you X amount for this whole bundle of work and it needs to be done by this date. So that way I can really plan around that and there aren't any surprises for the most part. <laughs> so it just makes my life a little bit easier. Um, in larger teams, having some sort of regular check-in, like a scrum meeting in the mornings, whether it be daily or weekly, and having some sort of task board, whether that be a physical one or whether that be something like um, uh, Trello. I know a lot of people use Trello. Keeping that communication channel very open and very transparent is really, really important. If people are interested in following up on some of the stuff that they've heard here or just checking out your work in general, where should they go? Yeah, so you can find more about my company at littleworldsinteractive.com and about the game at countingkingdomgame.com. Um, I am always open to talk with people either on Twitter at jhofstein or uh, through email, jenna at littleworldsinteractive.com. Um, and it's the internet, so there are probably many other ways to contact me as well. <laughs> awesome. 
Yeah. For super last question. Thank you so much, Jenna. Um, for of the, course. for the Boston Indies, the folks here who are aspiring to, you know, they look up your work, they're aspiring to design games. You mentioned networking. Where are some of the places you super recommend folks to meet other designers like yourselves and other people? Oh, there are so many. Um, the Boston scene is incredible because if you want to go to meetups, there are more meetups than anybody ever has the time <laughs> to go to. So it depends a little bit on what your focus is and whether you're an artist or a designer or a programmer and what tools you're using. The ones that I really enjoy are, um, and these are all monthly meetups, Boston Indies is great. It's, you know, as the name suggests, it's a large group of indies and they do demo nights and they do uh, talks and they do mini talks. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, tonight, actually, there's the Boston Unity Group Meetup, which is also monthly, and that's specifically for Unity developers. But really, I would recommend it for any game developers just as a way to meet other devs. Um, I believe every month that that is talks. They might not be every month. I'm not sure. They're roughly monthly. Um, so that's always really good informative talks specific to the Unity game engine. Uh, Women in Games is also a fantastic monthly meetup. It is... Um, for women and their allies. So it's not, you know, if you're a guy, mm -hmm. it's not like you can't go. You're very welcome. Um, I've been super happy with those. Those are always super nice to go to. And your presentation <laughs> you gave at the last one was really nice. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. I hoped it wasn't too depressing. Um, but <laughs> it, it was honest and realistic. <laughs> <laughs> that was the goal. I made sure to add some <laughs> pictures in the end, just in case people were feeling down. <laughs> So I would absolutely recommend that one. And then the other one that I try to make it to very regularly is Boston Postmortem, which is the local chapter of um, IGDA. And that one I really enjoy because it's a very, you know, I'm an indie, so I primarily network with other indies. But Postmortem is a really nice mix of AAA developers and indies. So it's always nice to, uh, to reach out to those folks as well and get to know them. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, cool. I can definitely speak for me, Oleg and Maxine, um, saying thank you. This has been super fun to thank talk you so to much you. for having me. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. It's been really informative and interesting. And, you uh, say that you were the first guest on first person student, <laughs> the first <laughs> ever. Yeah. When now we blow up, that'll mean something. Yeah. Now we're super <laughs> legitimate. When do I get my, uh, do I get a certificate or a trophy or? I'm sure Oleg will think of something. Excellent. <laughs> a beautiful greeting card. <laughs> that will do. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. Uh, in the next segment, we'll be back to talk about some news. Um, but tonight, we're going to be a bit farewell to Jenna now. And uh, wish her the best of luck moving forward. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank Jenna. You Welcome back to the third and final segment of this, uh, our second episode of First Person Student. Second episode. Yep. I'm still Oleg Brodsky. Uh, Renzo still here? Still here. Maxine still here? We are all still here. Oof. No evil twin for Maxine this time. No evil twin. Back to talk about some news. Um, Max, uh, why don't you start? What caught your eye the past two weeks? 
you know, E3 is coming up. Uh, I'm sure everyone's really excited. I get kind of excited for E3. For whatever reason, I never get to watch it. Last year, I was in Japan, so it was basically airing at, like, 2 in the morning, and I had to go to class, and I was like, this isn't going to happen. So I didn't get to watch any of it last year. Um, this year, I guess, they're making it kind of more like GDC. Bethesda's holding their first ever press conference at E3, all on their own. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, E3's always fun for me. Uh, I got to go a couple of years back. Um, it was really, really cool. Uh, to see all that stuff. I was lucky I had a press pass, so I was able to sort of walk around without having too many problems, you know, jump, in, jump ahead in, in lines and stuff like that. Um, the press conferences are, are super fun to, to be part of, uh, and I always enjoy catching those, you know, on, on live streams and stuff like that. Uh, it's really cool that, that Bethesda's doing one. There's going to be a PC uh, centric concert uh, conference this this year that's being hosted by I think uh, PC Gamer Magazine. Um, so th- it's it's interesting. It's it's been a good year for games already, and E3 always has a couple cool things that we can get to talk about. Uh, next episode, I think we'll probably have we'll 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 make some E3 predictions to see if uh, see if we can get them right, uh, and then the the show will co- the show will happen right before the episode releases, so uh, we won't know if we're, we were right or not. It'll be interesting. Oh, uh, uh, let me let me clarify. Um, normally, E3 is for like industry, but this year they're letting uh, like industry members invite the public. So there's going to be some limited public access to E3 this year. I think this is this is a fairly common thing. I think the big deal is that they're they're reaching out a bit more aggressively this year because in years past it's been possible to get a pass if you're not a developer uh, because there's a lot of like retailers get to go go to the E3 as well. Um, and you know, if you, if you, if you go, if you work at GameStop, there's a chance you get to go or whatever. Um, not a yeah, I mean, Poly- sorry, Polygon has an interesting graph about like, uh, how far the attendance drop and it looks like they're trying to bolster their attendance to where it once was. Yeah. I don't know how much of that is, is important because E3 as a, tr- as a show, as a trade show is really not for fans. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that like Axis, uh, E3 is really for for retailers and publishers and developers, um, and then it, they use it as a press event to also show off stuff and get hype going for for new products and releases, especially for the coming holiday season. So I don't know. I don't know how much of that because I don't know. Are they are they f- asking them to pay for for the passes? My impression of this was that they were sort of being given passes for free. It looks like from this article that they're being given passes. <laughs> yeah, so this is more of just like, I think this is more of a PR thing and uh, just getting people at the show and, and having people talk about E3 some more. Yeah, of course. As opposed to anything else. I probably won't be able to watch it this year either since I don't have good TV. Well, I don't, I don't know if there's any, I think Spike might broadcast it, but I don't know if anyone else does. Spike oh, still yeah. exists? Doesn't it? I think so. I have no idea. I used to that's, watch it on G4. That's a well, network. Yeah, G- I remember G4 watching that there. Uh, they don't, that doesn't exist anymore. You could go to the library or something, you know, where you, you get to record these and, and check these out uh, when, when they're going live. Because they're mm. going to be out throughout the day. There's a, there's a schedule that we'll try and post in the show notes so you guys can see uh, what times... Uh, E3 conferences are, so you can check out the ones you like. I really enjoy watching them, even the really awkward ones, because they're hilarious for that reason. 
uh, even and and at the end you get to see some cool games that are that they announce and stuff like that. Obviously, like this, it's all press and marketing crap. So like it's, you can get mm-hmm. excited about it, but I recommend not buying stuff based on stuff you see at E3 because you'll get sad. We'll see. What <laughs> or the stuff you. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of the stuff that we're going to see at E3 is going to be that uh, really far out release. I mean, obviously there's a new Assassin's Creed coming up, but. I think they're going to be like, oh, this is coming out in 2017. They seem to have a focus on social media, um, at least on the article. So Rich Taylor, he's the senior vice president of consumer and industry affairs for E3. Um, he said that in this, vet, in this age of vast social media, having some of these voices in the hall to report their reaction and enthusiasm is seen as a big plus. I get the feeling that I'm trying to think of what's there like in PAX and GDC where obviously attendance has been growing. And people have been going to them more. I feel like there's going to be more things announced and more opportunities for people to interact, hopefully interact, um, with the developers and with the folks who are usually there just for retailers and publishers. The thing is, E3 show floor stuff that the stuff that the, these public these people will be seeing. This is almost entirely you know PR marketing people that you're interacting with. There are very few devs on the show floor of E3. It's not GDC at all. I mean, it's closer to PAX East in that sense where. Usually, when you're talking to somebody there, there's no indies or anything. So it's it's usually the big companies, you know, you Bethesda and uh, and Ubisoft and Activision and stuff. And it's just it's PR and marketing handlers because they they're interacting with press people um, and they don't care about really interacting with the public as developers because that's not the goal of E3. Uh, and to go back to Max's point, um, uh, never mind because I completely forgot what I was about to say. So, good on me. Uh, but let's transition. Uh, Renzo, what struck you about uh, these past two weeks? All right. So, I'll confess, even after all this, I'm a big Konami fan. Like, I love Metal Gear Solid. I'm a huge fan of the Dance Dance Revolution series. I played all of those songs. If any of you want to challenge me on a heavy song and you have an arcade machine or something, let's go at it. But I'm feeling worried. Basically, like, the things that have been happening in the past have just sort of really dampened their image. So to get into these news, a good thing would be to summarize what sort of happened. So long story short, Silent Hills got canceled. And even a little before that, Konami was taken away Hideo Kojima's name from all the promotion and all the posters for Metal Gear Solid. Um, yeah, and, that's a big one. It It's huge. And so far, we finally got a press release statement, uh, Hideki Hayakawa, he's the one who assumed the role of president of Konami on April 1st. He gave the interview. It seemed to regard Hideo Kojima, but basically only brought up um, Metal Gear Solid V, Phantom Pain director Hideo Kojima and his team members are hard at work in the new production division system, bringing the game ever closer to completion. But anything regarding the rumors of his departure, the cancellation of Silent Hills, there's really no mention, just saying that we're still dedicated. The only apology there is... We're aware that the conjecture surrounding our recent changes has prompted a great deal of anxiety, for which we apologize. Um, and that's really about it. Everything else is, you know, we're still dedicated. And then the rest of the statement, or from beginning to end, really, everything is just about the movement to go mobile. They're not giving up on consoles and PC, but the big thing is mobile shift. Um, you know, it, it makes sense, you know, with Nintendo already announcing they're going mobile, so Konami seems to be really seeing this and is really announcing that they're going to focus on it. Um, 
I don't know. It's just, it's a shame how much they seem to be ignoring their fans. Um, anywhere you go, people are, you know, asking questions and saying like, you know, what's going on, what's going on with Kojima, but it seems to be silent. Um, you know, I was curious what you guys thought if, if this is only a good business move for them to stay silent or if they should open up, if they want to keep a good reputation. So, I don't know. I think opening up about it, like I know there was a small falling out. Um, and I think personally that Kojima is going to do what a lot of other Japanese developers have done after leaving their big company is, you know, they're going to go on and make a spiritual successor. I'm sure we're going to see uh, some kind of like Silent Hills remake or Castlevania. I know everyone's like crossing their fingers, hopefully hoping he'll uh, team up with, oh gosh, what's his name? Uh, Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. And, uh, make a crazy scary silent hill game but um i think we kind of have to wait and see i think konami's kind of struggling uh they don't have any of those you know i think nintendo is being held afloat by their major ip and konami has a solid fan base but they haven't done anything with their ip their ip in years and the truth is (laughs) the truth is to make the console games that their fans want they have to spend a ton of money and I think the evaluation they made was there's not enough of those fans anymore to make back the money that they would make that they would lose by making those games in the first place. Um, that's that's what this looks like to me. This this looks like a simple case of we Metal Gear Ground Five uh, the Ground Zeroes did not do very well. Phantom Pain is taking a ton of money because Kojima likes to do stuff that is incredibly expensive. Um, and they've already sunk enough money in it at this point that they feel that their sunk cost is worth enough to keep the project going until release, but they're not making any more big bets. You know, I, their, their financials got released a few weeks ago, and things were looking grim for their digital division. The game company made a lot more money from, like, gambling machines uh, that it sells in Japan than the stuff that we know it for here. So, yeah, while it sucks if you're a fan of Silent Hills and... Uh, and Metal Gear Solid and stuff like that. The problem is there's just not enough of you guys left anymore who are who are buying these games to justify the expense of making them. And moving those those IP onto to mobile is cheap and fairly inexpensive to to produce. You know, if you want a Castlevania, you know, Dracula's Castle, Clash of Clans style game, like Konami can make that now. It's not going to cost them a lot of money, and those fans could still play that idea just from a different perspective and on a different device. So yeah. th- this looks to me like it just them go them sort of bowing to inevitability. They don't have they haven't had the success that they've wanted to have with their IP in a long time. Metal Gear Solid 4 was a long time ago. Uh, Castlevania the last successful game was was what 4 years ago. Uh, yeah, Silent of- Hills hasn't had, had a successful release since what Silent Hills 2. Yeah. Uh, three and the three people. Good, there was yeah, the reboot a couple a couple of years ago that yeah. that got slammed. There was Book of Memories, I think it was called, that also got slammed. Three, I, I don't hear a lot of love for. The one I hear a lot of love for is two, and it's you know I respect people who who like that. They, you know that's that's fine. I don't blame you for disliking that those games that were not successful. Konami looks at those and like, well, maybe we just can't make the game successful again, and then we're just spending, we're just throwing money down a hole. It may have been a recent change with um, Konami too. I just saw that uh, Hideki Hayakawa. I wonder how much talk with Konami there was before he assumed the role um, to 
make these changes and then um, do changes with the the company to go mobile. I would imagine that his position on these issues was not unknown before coming into them. I don't think this is particularly surprising. Anybody outside of people who don't really follow uh, Konami, I think... I mean, the thing is, I have a hard time looking at this from a business perspective and saying that this doesn't make any sense. This makes all the sense in the world. Um, this sucks for the people who really liked PT and were really looking forward to more Metal Gear Solid, but, like, unfortunately, like, you are a, a vast minority in the sea of games at this point, and Konami can't afford to, to do what you want to appease you. No. I'm sad. Metal Gear Solid 4 is why I bought a PS3. I thought that $599 piece of junk was, was going to kill Sony. I played MGS4. I fell in love with the whole series. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel bad for those people who really like those series, but the truth is, like, there's any, any IP that you're really attached to is at the whims of one really terrible design decision or terrible business decision or just apathy from the fans. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's really... It's really, really tough to make video games, especially at the level of Metal Gear Solid. Um, so you, it's it's really expensive, and if you make a mistake, suddenly you your company might not really exist anymore. Uh, so you you don't want to take those bets if you can't afford to to miss them. Oh well, well. To go on with Konami, um, I know Maxine, you were wondering about. We were all wondering what could happen with Silent Hill. So there's a rumor that. Microsoft is in talks with Konami to buy Silent Hills, um, which left, you know, social media abuzz about what's happening. (laughs) Um, You know, some people are happy. I think it'd be cool. Um, I'll say my opinion. I think it'd be really neat, Um, even if it means Silent Hill is an Xbox exclusive. um, Because if Sony and Konami aren't going to do anything, we saw a lot of potential with PT, and hopefully it'll stay in that same direction. But obviously... Anything can happen. It could just be them seeing success in the franchise and doing whatever they want with it, depending on the developer that they use. There's two big reasons I look at this, and I say this is bullshit. The first one is that PT was initially a Sony exclusive. So I would be very surprised. And and Sony saw the numbers, I'm sure. And I'm sure that they saw those numbers and they said, if if, if anyone was going to buy this, I feel like it'd be Sony. Because this game is being built for the PS4 Hopefully. originally. Um, so the fact that it's a Microsoft rumor immediately makes me go, wait a second. Uh, because it would take a lot of money for them to buy it. It would take a lot of uh, money for them to, to port it over. And then it's a really weird fit for, for Microsoft. I don't understand where this, why they would buy this. Unless they're really desperate, which they're not quite desperate enough yet in my opinion. Um, the other reason I find this rumor to be bullshit is when it was reported, uh, it was reported that the number, the amount of money that Microsoft would be paying for Silent Hills would be in the billions. That's billions with a B and an S, which is also bullshit. Clever. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, Mike, Microsoft paid paid two billion for for Mojang. Two billion dollars, which is technically billions, <laughs> is way more fucking money than Silent Hills will, will ever be worth. Okay. This, this property is worth maybe in the hundreds of millions and in the low hundreds. It, it's just ridiculous that an IP sale would be this expensive. Uh, and that's another reason that makes me look at this and say this is bullshit. This should never have been reported because this, this smells like crap all over the place. Uh, it's, 
it, I don't understand why in the world they would ever spend that amount of money for this mm. because they don't need to. Silent Hills isn't worth that much. You could easily develop your own franchise like this without having any of the problems or associations with Silent Hill or Silent Hills. While main, while you could fucking hire Hideo Kojima and Guillermo del Toro, and it would be cheaper to just have them develop a new version of this game with a new name than to buy the IP. There's also the fact that um, Brian Albert's IGN article about it uh, says that an anonymous source told reportedly told Rooster Teeth that Microsoft is in talks, so it's... A bastion of journalistic integrity. Yeah, and, you know, I would love my news to come from them or Mega64. I love both of them, but, yeah, you're right. They're, yeah. This would be like the Colbert Report breaking a story. <laughs> like, that's not what they do, guys. Like, they make fun of that stuff, and that's okay. I mean, Rooster Teeth is a little different, I guess. Like, they have some ties to Microsoft, but it's still stinks to high heaven and i don't understand why this was ever reported but there are people who watch colbert and john stewart for their news um sure but the, but they don't go out and and they're not journalists that's, that's the thing like they're pundits they they go out and they find other people talking about the news and they talk about them but they don't themselves go out to a place really and try and report a story um, that does happen sometimes with the daily show which is why i didn't use that as an example but the colbert report basically never did that um, very rarely. And Rooster Teeth is even further from that. Like, Mega64 is closer to, to Colbert Rapport than, than Rooster Teeth is. Yeah. It's, I, it just doesn't make any sense for them to know this. Like, why in the world would somebody tell them this? If you're going to, if you're at Microsoft or you're at Konami, why aren't you talking to IGN or, or Game Informer or Kotaku or somebody that actually is a journalist or journalism organization? Like, why are you telling Rooster Teeth this? I don't understand. Yeah, me neither. It's the way of the world. The comedy groups are the source of news. Look, yeah. I mean, like, if this was on NeoGAP, I would have laughed at it more. But, like, this is ridiculous. Like, this doesn't make any goddamn sense. Oh, well. Sorry, Lorenzo. Sorry to crush your hopes and dreams. No, no. I, you know, I'm the one out of... You're right. I'm the big minority. I can't find anyone who can discuss, you know the Metal Gear Solid plot with me and whatnot. So. I'll, I'll show you a place that you might be interested in after this, but uh, let's, let's transition to talking about something else uh, that also I find hilarious. Uh, recently, uh, Palmer Lucky, who is the, uh, the founder of Oculus VR, um, which was purchased by Facebook last year for a cool billion dollars, um, was sued by a company that claimed to be his former employer, um, and they claim that he carried some of his uh, work from them, uh, the, the company's Total Recall Technologies, um, that he took some of that work uh, to run the Kickstarter campaign for Oculus to then, and then is being used by Oculus and by, uh, by Facebook now. Um, and so it's basically the plot of Silicon Valley? Basically, yeah. Yeah, that's a fair, that's a fair bet. Except I don't, know, I don't know if I'd trust Lucky in this situation. Um, so usually lawsuits like these happen at two times. They either happen very early uh, before the product has – but when the product has been shown but it has not really been developed yet. Um, and those lawsuits tend to be to prevent that thing from coming out and existing. Uh, then there's the other lawsuit which happens years after the product has, has either released or – is about to release. In this case, that's the, we're talking about Facebook buying uh, Oculus. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just where their money comes from. Um, 
so they're basically suing Facebook through Oculus. Uh, and those lawsuits happen because the people suing want a cut of the action. Um, basically, if this, is a, if this isn't crap and that there is actual, uh, that these guys actually do have cause, which from my readings of people's legal opinions on this, it sounds like there might be, um, then these guys are basically doing this just to, just to get a cut of the action. Um, mm-hmm. They're not really doing this to prevent Oculus from coming out, uh, like Bethesda kind of was when they sued Oculus last year, um, which I don't think we've heard anything about that lawsuit since. Um, but yeah, they're, they're basically doing this because they, they're making money uh, through via Facebook. They're going to make money as soon as it comes out uh, later this year. So this is basically just when this gets settled in a year or two, there's going to be a settlement, I'm assuming, probably out of court, uh, where Total Recall will get some chunk of, of money in exchange for uh, giving Facebook and, and therefore Oculus the right to, uh, to make this product. I'm not worried about VR's future from that perspective. I think, uh, I think Oculus will be okay. And even if Oculus somehow is prevented from releasing, which is possible, um, this is probably going to end up with somebody else just taking market position, you know, like HTC or Sony. So VR is safe and secure. It's just whether Oculus uh, will be around to enjoy it. And uh, one correction, it was not $1 billion, It was $2 billion, My mistake. Yeah, and I think the consumer version will come out, looks like, first quarter of 2016, according to, according to another Polygon article where they reported it. And we talked about this before, but um, it's insane uh, how much there seems to be so much up and down with virtual reality. Some say it's a fad, but it is a rising thing. It makes sense with how technology is going. They might as well go to, like, another platform. Um, but one thing I'm curious about is if this will, like, if it'll just damper the thought that people have about VR, you know, it, it's such an easy thing to at least file as something that a company would make unless total recall technologies had a specific patent that was about virtual reality that Oculus specifically took. So, okay. We're not lawyers, so we should really be careful about this. But, uh, from my understanding, this is not a case of a patent dispute. This is basically, this is a breach of contract, which is different because basically, while the, the claim that while Lucky was a, an employee of Total Recall Technologies, uh, he did work on Oculus, which is a breach of contract. It's like, so if, uh, in a lot of places, like a lot of game development companies, if you, um, if you uh, work at the company, they have what's called a non-compete, which means that for, while you're working with them and for usually a certain amount of time after you leave, you can't work on things that are fairly similar to that. So obviously, if Total Recall, which claims it was working on a VR solution, um, had that sort of clause with Lucky, and then he left to make Oculus right around the same time, that is a fairly serious problem for them. Um, whereas patent law is a very different, very messy thing that I think we should probably stay away from. Uh, so let's talk about one last thing. Uh, Let's talk about uh, FIFA 16. Uh, so it was announced the other day uh, that FIFA 16, for the first time, will have international women's teams, um, which is a big deal and res- caused a lot of... There's a lot of re- responses to this thing on social media, as you can imagine, and some people were very upset about this, which I find kind of hilarious. Of course they are. Yeah. Uh, 
the people saying, oh, I'm not going to be fanatic because it has women's teams. It's like, okay, come on, guys. Like, let's... My my also fav- my favorite one though is people complaining that they should be that the developers should be focusing their time on getting uh, bugs and features fixed. Uh, those are people who have no understanding of what is actually happening uh, because the the people who are who are making w- the women's teams have absolutely nothing to do with the people who are working on bugs or bugs, yeah, yeah like that's, that's entirely separate stuff you're basically talking about a slight variation to a character model that they already have In, instead of having a male uh player you need a female player so that's not a huge variation um you don't really i, I i'm gonna be very surprised if they recorded a unique animation uh for for the female player i would very much imagine that they're using just the male animations and they're slapping uh, a female coat of, coat of paint on it um and then the other only the only other difference past that is basically creating different uniforms which is a that's like you're talking about like a couple artists taking some some time a couple you know a couple 3d modelers who are who are working to add it they're only adding like 12 teams and mm-hmm. that's the fifa already has like a bajillion teams from so many different leagues across the world like this is such a small addition which probably took like five people uh the, the some other time like uh, this is nothing <laughs> I'm more curious to see if this is going to be a thing in FIFA 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if this really ends up being a big deal to, to players and people don't actually end up buying it, um, then, that's, then, then EA is going to look at that and say, we're not doing this again. Because EA exists to make money and not to make social change. Yeah. So it, it just strikes me as another, another thing where I think it's a, it's great PR for EA. This looks really good for them. Um, yeah. This is, this is a situation where they they could do that without actually spending too much money or time. Um, I'm kind of surprised it took this long, but I think they picked a good climate uh, to to do this um, because I tend to believe that the people who are complaining about this issue are going to forget about it by the time FIFA comes out in a few months. Um, it's just another thing where they EA is basically making what looks like a pretty smart move and we'll see if it pays off yeah hopefully Maxine what do you think I don't know I'm just always surprised these things are a big deal like I see a headline like that like oh FIFA's adding women team women's teams I'm like okay I don't really care about soccer you know like that's cool <laughs> there's ladies in the game but I guess it is a big deal uh I I don't know yeah, I mean, for sports, granted, I, you know, I told all of this, I barely watch sports. Um, all I ever hear about for women teams are like in softball, but I never really hear about the, I think the WNBA, I know there's that, but then. Well, like, it, it's like the big joke that nobody watches women's sports uh, because they're not fun or whatever. Most of, like the most popular female athletes are usually in individual sports. They're <laughs> track runners, the Williams sisters, tennis, that kind of thing. Like That's uh, you don't normally, you know, if somebody if somebody says they like soccer, well, football, I suppose. But if somebody says they like soccer, soccer um, you know, they're going to say, oh, I'm a fan of Chelsea or whatever. They're not going to. Right. Most of the time, you're not going to catch somebody naming a woman's team off the bat. Um, I think it's I mean, I don't see there being much of a problem. You know, you're adding content, like Oleg said, basically cheaply. You don't have to do that much work. It was kind of like that big uh, thing with Ubisoft and the Assassin's Creed, how like they didn't have any playable female characters. And they were like, oh, well, it costs too much money. And basically everybody was like, that's crap. You know, we know that. The modeling isn't—it's not going to take that much time or money. But well, I mean, so that one's—that one's not exactly the same. Uh, though the point is still um, well made. 
because in the Ubisoft case, it basically comes down to like what your priorities are um, in terms of your your animation budget and stuff like that. Like, like I said, like I don't think that the the women that be, that are being added to FIFA are going to look uh, from the perspective of like running around or anything like that. Any anywhere different from men? I don't think they probably took the time to mocap. Uh, women players to make sure that they move correctly or anything like that. They're probably just going to staple the generic animations they have already to those models and call it a day. Um, whereas with the the Ubisoft situation, um, they were really poorly trying to explain that they were talking about having women as fully featured characters, where you you do the you make sure you model them right, you make sure that they walk right. That because a lot of times when you have a choice between those, uh, for example, in Mass Effect. Um, they just use the, the male default animations for that stuff. Whereas with FIFA, where you have two characters on a pitch at a time, you don't have to worry as much about making sure that women look distinctly different in their running from men. Which, by the way, Assassin's Creed does have a playable female character uh, with the upcoming Assassin's Creed They had Syndicate. playable female characters when they had multiplayer, and now they have one. And I'm very, very proud. I'm sure you are. Uh, also, just kind of breaking news, I guess, since we're t- we talked about this, but uh, Microsoft's Phil Spencer, uh, who is the head of their Xbox division, um, he just he just uh, responded to the uh, the Silent Hills rumors, saying, uh, "quote Sorry, this isn't true. Not sure where the rumor started, but I don't want to mislead anyone." <laughs> End quote. Aw, too bad. Yeah, nice. I'm sure somebody who really, really loves the game, there'll be a Silent Hill. Maybe not in that vein, but it's it's kind of like the what is it? Um, oh gosh, I forgot the name of it, but the Banjo Kazooie spiritual successor. Oh, uh, ukulele. Yeah, ukulele. That's what it was. Um, like somebody's gonna make it. Somebody's that's that seems to be the new trend recently. Instead of there being like a design fad, it's like oh let's uh let's make the same game but put a new skin on it because we don't own the IP and people really yeah. want it. Well, that's been a fad in terms of Kickstarter. I really. I don't think we've had it. I can't think of any game that's, that's been true. like a real spiritual successor in that vein. Uh, there have been a couple, so that's not totally fair. But I'm very interested to see how that trend plays out as well. But yeah, uh, this was, like I said earlier in this podcast, we had breaking news during a podcast. That's a new thing, um, <laughs> which you guys find out about until we release this next week anyway. Uh, but yeah, this was crap from the beginning. I Yeah. I'm for sorry, con- Renzo. I know your heart is you broken. You know, Konami is going down the hole i don't know what's going on so i hope sony can just they have a division they can develop it themselves hopefully they can do something it's just too bad it's not with uh, uh, konami's not going to sell this they they have no reason to do it what are they gonna do like they they'll held... make a silent hills mobile game like oh. what are you they'll silent, come up with silent hill casino. casino yeah sure <laughs> Yeah, Sun Hills theme theme Z- casino. Sun Hill zombie like, crush. Actually, horror like horror theme parks do the best in Japan. If they made like a horror themed casino, <laughs> I'm sure. And recently, Japan has made a move to legalize gambling all over. So there you go. Techni- like it's I mean, technically cool. not legal yet. And that IP money. is worth more to Konami than it is to anybody else. Like that's that's the thing is no one is going to spend the amount of money to buy that IP that Konami would request from them. Unless Konami actually goes down the tubes like THQ did, no one's going to be able to purchase well, that IP. Okay, well, them. y'all can continue this. I'm going to go in a corner and just cry. I'm just... Okay, uh, and with that, I think, I think we've, uh, we've talked about enough news. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, please be sure to sus- subscribe to us. And uh, if you have any questions about anything we talked about, please reach out to us either on the comment section of our blog, 
FP student, I think, is the blog. Uh, FPS-podcast.blogspot.com. And uh, you can also reach out to us on our Twitter, at FP underscore students. And you can also follow each of us. Uh, Maxine is at Linguistic Gamer. Renzo is at Renzo G. Heredia. And I am at Indie underscore Intern. Uh, And please uh, reach out to us, ask us questions. Um, We really want to hear from people. And uh, mm-hmm. if you ha- and we, we we would love to answer some of your questions in our next podcast. Um, I think we can announce at this time that we will be speaking uh, next time about programming, uh, what that entails, and we Hooray! will be speaking with uh, Ichiro Lam of Dejoban uh, about his experience mm-hmm. in programming, and that's going to be a fun talk because Ichiro is always a great listen. Yeah. Anything uh, that anything that you guys have to suggest to anything that you want to see or hear. You know, let it out. Reach out to us. We've been really happy with um, hearing people's thoughts about the podcast. They've been pretty positive. You know, overall, telling people at um, at a game dev hangout or Boston Indies. But if you guys have any thoughts, any feedback, critique, like totally let it out. All right. So thank you guys again for listening, and from all of us here, uh, we'll see you around next time. Have a good one. Take care, guys. Yeah.